many, many places, and I'm thankful Thankful for that. Thank you for being here tonight. It's good to see each of you a part of the service. I want to ask you to take your Bible and turn to Revelation chapter 3. Would you do that? Revelation chapter 3 in the Word of God. Revelation chapter 3 in the Scripture. Revelation chapter 3. And if you're able and are willing, out of respect for God's Word, would you stand? Revelation chapter 3, let's read verse number 1 and following. Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 and following. The Bible says, And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things that remain, which are ready, that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If, therefore, thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garment, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels." Father, speak to our hearts, I pray, and change us as a result of our time in your word. And we'll thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. Some years ago, I was preaching in, the, in, in a northern state, in the state that I grew up in. And uh, I was aware, made aware of the fact that <clears throat> a church was being raised to the ground, completely demolished. And uh, it was the church that I grew up in. And I said, man, I, I, I'm, I'm sorry to hear this. Now, the church body had moved. They had kept a witness in the city and they had moved out to a suburb because there were people from the city that went to the church when I grew up and people from the suburbs that went to the church. And uh, they had moved and they had since sold the building. And and, and so I said, I got to go. I got to go. I, I'm sorry to hear this. This church building had been sold. Beautiful building with uh, old, old uh, pipe organ and old, uh, old auditorium. We called it the Clearwaters Chapel. And then there was the big build, big auditorium that sat about 2000 people in a Christian school uh, a building and gymnasium and a seminary building and and just just a wide ranging complex. And I went there and I pulled up there on West Broadway Street. And it was just demolished. It had been sold to the public school system and the public school system had made it their headquarters. I suppose similar to what is across the street from here. And uh, then in a few years, they just decided they'd raise the whole thing and they built a brand new building. Yeah, good government dollars hard at work. But uh, they, they were going to they were taking it down at this particular point. There was a big old wrecker with a wrecking ball slamming into the side of the walls. I said, I got to go. So I walked in. I looked around. The whole thing was just completely surrounded by a, a, a fence, some kind of a security fence. And there was a trailer that was, uh, I guess, a construction trailer there. And I, wa- I walked into that trailer and I said, is there anybody that's responsible for this? And a lady spoke up. She said, yeah, I am. I said, well, ma'am, I, I just if I could, I'd like to just go roam around and get a brick. And she said, what is with people coming to this place and getting bricks? I said, I'm not the only one. No, she said, you're like the 12th one in the last two weeks. I said, well, I said, yes, I I would like a brick. She said, well, you can't go, but I'll send somebody out to get you a brick. And so some guy in a hard hat went out and he went searching for a brick. 
And I figured, you know, this is as good a time as any to explain why I'm here. So I said, you really want to know why I came to get a brick? She said, yeah. She said, you're not the only one. All these people coming to get bricks. I said, well, I'll tell you why. I said, because at this spot, there were a lot of people that were once on their way to hell and they met Jesus and they trusted Christ as their savior. And now they're on their way to heaven. And I said, there were a lot of marriages that were mended at this spot. And I said, there were a lot of people that were strung out on alcohol and drugs and immoral living. And they were rescued from all this on that spot. And the difference is Jesus Christ and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I began to preach the gospel as clearly as I could. Well, she was never so glad to give me a brick and get me out of there. I can assure you that. And so, so, uh, you know, I, I was just thinking about that and thinking about it recently. I have that brick there at home right on my bookshelves and I have it marked and I have it marked when I got it there. And there were some great things that happened. And our lives were changed on that spot. There were great revivals that were held. And evangelists would come in and they'd preach the house down. And they'd preach for souls to be saved. And souls would be saved. There were revivals that took place on that spot. And Christian school revivals that would be held at least once a year. Sometimes twice a year. There'd be a revival sometimes once, sometimes twice a year. And that church was a powerhouse for God. It was a preacher by the name of R.V. Clearwaters that was the pastor of that church for four decades. And God used him in a mighty way. And even after, there was this inspiration that was held at that church that started just one Sunday night a month. And it was held in the fireside room. And in the fireside room, uh, people would, young people would come, young people, teenagers, high school age and, and college age, they'd come and they'd pack in the fireside room and they'd sing for an hour and a half after the Sunday evening service. I mean, sing choruses and they'd sing hymns and they'd sing the song that was sung tonight with a different tune. I mean, they'd sing the rafters down. And then after a while, they said, you know, instead of just once a month, let's do this every Sunday night. So every Sunday night they began to do that. And they would have young people stay an hour and a half after the Sunday night service. Pack it in, hearing the songs of Zion, singing the house down, praising God for his goodness. And pretty soon churches from around the cities found out and they would send their young people. And then college kids from Pillsbury Baptist Bible College and even other colleges would uh, the secular colleges in the area that were part of different youth groups. They would come and they would sing the stars down every Sunday night. You know, that inspiration lasted for 20 years. Every Sunday night when I got to the church, I was in fifth grade and we were still having whispers of that. It was a different pastor. It was. But we were still having some tremors of those great revivals. And God was working. It was a camp that the church had. The camp was a powerhouse for God. And they preached the gospel there. I got to preach later as an evangelist at that camp. I preached my first sermon in Clearwater's chapel in a in a in a little pulpit that Brother Clearwater's had preached from for years. And 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 my how the Lord worked. I remember coming into that auditorium, the big auditorium. I'd come to church in the school a little early. Mom and dad would drop me off seven thirty, eight o'clock, and and then they'd go off to work. And, and and I remember having my devotions in that auditorium. And I remember walking around the auditorium and praying for revival and asking God to stir the hearts of the people in our church and in our school. There was a radio station that blanketed the whole of Minneapolis and St. Paul, an FM radio station that for years was a powerhouse and the gospel went forth and people were saved. And there still is some of that today. They had a revival meeting in 1990, which was my senior year, fall of my senior year. Evangelist who is now in heaven named Phil Schuler preached that revival meeting. Oh, oh, God worked. 
He was the son of fighting Bob Shuler out in California, who was an old Methodist fundamentalist preacher that would stand for the things of God. And they saw great revivals. And he was preaching. I remember him. He had been an evangelist for 40 years at that time. And I knew that by that time, God had called me to be an evangelist. And it was just a, a blessing to be under his ministry. The next revival meeting that they had at that church was 2001. Do you know how many revival meetings they've had since then? Zero. So from 1990 to 2023, that church, even in its new location, has had two revival meetings. Now, that tells me something about that church. And I say it with tears in my heart. Either they're so spiritual they don't need revival. Or they're disobedient to Jesus Christ, the one who invented revival. Either they're so spiritual they don't need the preaching of an evangelist. Or they're disobedient to the one who gave the evangelist. How could it be that a church at one time would have two revivals a meeting meetings a year and they would have sometimes two revival meetings added to that on top of that in the Christian school? And they would use evangelists and they would preach the word of God and, and they would see souls saved. And there are people all over the Midwest that have gotten saved and got trained for ministry and went out into the white harvest fields of the world to preach the gospel. And now they've only had two revival meetings. Since 1990. Tragic. I believe that that would fit the description perfectly in verse number two, verse number one, when it says unto the angel of the church in Sardis, write these things, saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works that thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. Do you know? That the story of that church has been repeated over and over and over again. I'm thinking of a church right now in Akron, Ohio, that once was a powerhouse for God. It was once listed in the top ten fastest growing Sunday schools in America. And it once made a great difference in the community. People would come and get saved. B.R. Lakin would come and preach on a regular basis in that church. And people were saved. A man named Roy Thompson, who was living with his mom in cardboard boxes under a bridge and, and was homeless and and. and was 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 filled with the stench of alcohol on his clothes and on his on his breath. And, and he got saved and he got saved and God changed him, made a preacher out of him. I think of another man named Larry Clayton, who is an evangelist now, who's 88 years of age. Both of those men were powerhouses and are for God. Roy Thompson is in heaven. Larry Clayton is still preaching at 88, 89 years of age. My, what a powerhouse for God. Both of them went off to Bible college. Both of them went out in the ministry together. Both of them made a great impact. One off went off to start the Cleveland Baptist Church in Cleveland, Ohio, and make a great difference for God. Now, Akron Baptist Temple, the buildings are sold. The church is a shadow of what it once was. They adopted a compromising way and a compromising route. They have a name that they've lived, but they're dead. I can think of church after church after church across this country that in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s was a powerhouse for God. And by that, I don't mean the biggest. 
Biggest isn't the gauge as to whether or not something is spiritual or right. I just mean they were a fire for God and they were a blaze for God. And they once were seeking the spirit of God and once were seeking the, the power of God, they, they would run buses and they would have camps and they would have youth conferences and they would have revival meetings and they would have evangelistic pushes and they would have tent meetings and they were all a part of it. <clears throat> Just a shadow. I was just preaching in San Leandro, California, and just down the road is a church in San Dimas, California, that is now sold. It once boasted 2,000 members, and people came from all over to hear the preaching of the Word of God, and many people were saved. Wow. A name that thou livest and art dead. How does that happen? Well, it happens one little lie at a time. And it happens, watch this closely, one Christian at a time. I want to preach to you tonight on this subject, God's solution for churches and Christians that used to. God's solution for churches and Christians that used to. Churches and Christians that used to have the power of God upon them. Churches and Christians that used to have the Spirit of God that would fire their soul. Churches and Christians that used to win souls to Jesus. Churches and Christians that used to have a holy and consecrated testimony. Churches and Christians that used to stand upon the Word of God. Churches and Christians that used to pray and get their prayers answered. Churches and Christians that used to, uh, that used to believe the Bible and try to raise their family to love the Bible. Churches and Christians that used to long for revival and used to push for revival. Churches and Christians that used to try to be a shining light to their neighbors and to their community and to their co-workers. Churches and Christians that used to. Now, any one of us can go from being a fire and a blaze for God to being someone that used to. And you might be someone that used to yesterday and you've just given up and you're in the early stages of giving up and you're in the beginning moments of a, a path away from God and a big beginning moments of of walking away from the father's house and into the far country. You may have left it about a week ago, maybe maybe two months ago, maybe you left it two years ago. Maybe it's been 10 years that since you've really been ablaze for God and a fire for God and seeking to have the power and blessing of God upon your life and the hand of God and the touch of God upon your life. Tonight, in Revelation chapter 3, God gives a clear solution for churches and Christians that used to. Notice what he says in verse 1. He says, unto the angel of the church in Sardis, write, this is a church in a literal city called Sardis. Now, I don't believe that Revelation 2 and Revelation 3 are speaking of church ages. Now, it's an interesting thing. Somebody may study and say, well, this age looks like this church and this age looks like this church and this age looks like this church. And everybody knows that this age that we're living in now looks like the church of Laodicea. Uh, but you know what? I believe that if you told that theory to the churches that were in that day in Revelation 2 and 3, they'd look at you and say, what? These were literal churches in literal towns filled with literal people, not ages. And so here to the church at Sardis, the angel, the church unto the angel, of the church at Sardis, that is the pastor. He says, right. These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. That means the one who has authority, all power. I know thy works. That thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. I want us just to notice five simple truths. Number one, I want you to notice there's a sad place. 
It's a sad place to be when you have a name that you're alive and you're really dead. A name that you once were trying to make a name for Jesus Christ and you were alive and you had the life of God and the abundant life in you and on you. You had eternal life. Now, look here. Once you have the life of God, you can never lose that life. He's not speaking about losing salvation here. He's just saying you 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 had the abundant life, but you, you, you don't seem to manifest any evidence that you have it now. You once were living for God and you were ablaze for God and you were alive. A church that's alive stands in absolute contrast to a church that's dead and churches that die, die for a lot of reasons. Sometimes they they die. Sometimes God has a church in a place for a time. The church that Alan and Mary Ann were a part of and Amber, Amber's family, Caitlin and Amber were a part of that. They were in a big military buildup in Germany. There were 300 people that came to the church. They had a vibrant ministry, but then then they moved the troops out of that area and so that thing dwindled. So sometimes it's a change because of demographics, but sometimes it's a change because of compromise and disobedience. Sometimes a church allows compromise in and they do one lie at a time and one member at a time. And so watch pastor needs to be the one that's the guardian. He needs to watch against the lying tricks of the devil. He needs to watch against wolves that would come in as sheep's clothing. He needs to watch against false teachers and false teaching and withstand those. Surely that's his responsibility. But, you know, it's every one of our responsibilities to see a lie and to call a lie a lie and to stand against it with the truth. And so here he says, thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. Uh, Sometimes a church can go dead because they allow disobedience. Sometimes they can allow deception and they allow false teaching to come in one lie at a time. This same church that I was a part of uh, when I was in fifth or sixth grade, I don't remember which, had to discipline a church member in that church who was a Sunday school teacher who was teaching that Jesus Christ was not God. How did that happen? Now, this was a good church when I was there. And, and, and even long after I left, this was a good church that had a strong standing. Thank God they practice church discipline. Some churches don't. And when you don't, they're bound and, bound and fettered. You're going to have some trouble. But they, they, they called this guy out. How did he teach? How did he begin in a Bible preaching, fundamental Baptist church? How did he begin to teach that Jesus is not God? Well, one, he either believed it beforehand and kept it quiet and didn't tell anybody. Or he came to believe it afterwards and he never had the honor and the decency to step aside and say, I'm going to go find some people that believe like I do. He just kept promoting his false teaching. And he was indignant. He wasn't going to change his beliefs. And so they had to discipline him out. Why? Well, well, just one lie at a time creeps in. But they don't always come in that bold. And they don't come in that obvious most of the time. Sometimes they come in with a little change here and a little change there. Change that's not new, new paint and not new carpet and new pews, by the way. Wow, this is so beautiful. All these carpet and pews. And uh, I've discovered after talking to Pastor today that this church is in need of revival because you cut three foot of pew off of each one of these pews, disassembled them and put them all back together. So I know there has to be some bad attitudes as a result of all that. So that's why he called the evangelist in to come preaching and gunning for the bad attitudes because folks around here probably need some revival. But anyway, uh, it'd be Brother Bishop, just like Brother Bishop, to have the church do something like that. Hey, we're going to have a church picnic. And we're going to put pews in the church. And I heard that there were some men that lifted and hoisted a couple pews up into the balcony. I want to say, God bless you, men. You, you, wow, you need an extra medal or maybe a crown in heaven for that. But uh, let me just say, sometimes these lies come in one small deception. And are you ready? One small allowance 
at a time. I'll just tolerate a little sin here. I'll tolerate a little worldliness here. I'll tolerate and excuse a little disobedience here. When that happens, pretty soon a deluge comes in. Now, we wouldn't do that with the security team. No, no. There's security people right now watching over this place and this property and thank God for them. And they're walking around with cool little earpieces. Pastor, how can I get one of those earpieces? I really would like one before I leave. And they walk around with the little earpieces and they got a, a, a protocol and they got a plan in case something suspicious happens and something dangerous happens. And they're going to take care of the children and protect those that are vulnerable and good for them. Well, they wouldn't allow to, to let some marauder, some murderer, some, some evil person come in. But we allow and we tolerate sin and evil and worldliness and disobedience. And we compromise with it. And we excuse it. And that's shameful. That's how a church begins to die. You watch this because the life of Jesus Christ will not share glory with anything else. The life of Jesus Christ is directly linked to the truth of God's word. And when those that believe God's word obey it, all of a sudden there's life. When they trust God instead of trusting the world and trust God instead of trusting themselves, there's life. There's just automatic life. We wouldn't allow it in our home. You allow dirt to just build up in your home. Slop to just pour down the hallways of your home. Are you pretty intense about cleaning your home? I'm pretty intent about not letting snakes anywhere in my home. No, the only snake I like is a dead one. And I don't really like that one very much. One day, not long after we'd gotten a house, my my wife kept coming to me and saying, you know, honey, there's in the laundry room down in the basement, which is now our bedroom. You know, there's a hole in the cement wall and there's wires coming through there. You can see daylight and probably should get that caulked or fixed. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll get that fixed someday. I, same some same thing some of you men do with your wife and your honey to do list. And I'll, I'll get it fixed one day. Well, we come back from a, a little trip and we got in the house and Nathaniel, who was just young at the time, came running out of the house said, there's a snake in the house. I said, you're kidding. He said, no, I got a pickaxe and I got a shovel and I got a hoe. I said, that thing is not allowed in my house. My wife had walked right over it in the library and she just thought it was one of the kids green plastic snakes. It was a gardener snake about this big. Now, it was harmless. It wouldn't have hurt much of anything. But boy, snakes are not allowed in my house. No, no, no. And so I got it in. I, I took that hoe and I got it on its neck and I scooped it up by the neck and I grabbed it by the tail and I'm standing there saying, here you go, here you go. It really was a pretty bright green snake. And Peter, who was about five at the time, said, Dad, can I hold it? And I said, yeah, you can hold it. And so he took it and kept it out. It just didn't like this. And, and between me and that and Peter, that snake didn't have a chance. It expired and went to where all snakes go. But anyway, uh, finally, we threw it out by the, the tree and it was dead for the night. Well, we, you know what I did? I got caulk out and I fixed that hole in the basement. There's nothing that'll motivate a man to do what his honeydew list says to do other than a snake in the house or some rat or some failure on his part. Well, we wouldn't allow that with snakes. How come? How come we'll allow compromise and worldliness and disobedience and we'll tolerate evil in our lives individually, in our marriages, in our home, in our church? When we won't allow and tolerate evil and sin and foul odors and snakes and, and marauders and murderers. It's the same concept. 
God give us some Christians who will say, no, I'm not going to go down the road of compromise and I'm not going to go down the road of worldliness. Why? Because it puts me in a sad place. A sad place that thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. I don't want to ever anybody to say of Dwight Smith. Oh, have you heard about Dwight Smith? We used to preach it's wrong for people to gossip. Yeah, that's true. But people are going to talk. And if I've given them reason to talk by my disobedient choices and by my worldly actions, then the fault's not mine or theirs. It's mine. Did you heard about Dwight? disqualified himself from ministry. Where is he now? I don't know. Last I heard, he was running, running a bar. Wouldn't that be shocking? Wouldn't that be grievous? Wouldn't that be a problem? A name that thou livest and are dead. And you know what would be even worse? This church isn't running a bar. They just have a name that they're alive, but actually they're not. It says alive on the sign. It says alive on the printed material. It says alive on the songbook, but that's the only place that's alive. What says it in print? Look at what he says in verse number two. He says, be watchful and strengthen the things that remain that are ready to die. In other words, not everything in these churches was dead. He said, strengthen the things that remain. The first solution that he gives is strengthen the things that remain. Strengthen, not weaken, strengthen the things that remain. Uh, Do you know Charles Spurgeon said a Christian's conviction as they grow in Christ should never weaken. They should only strengthen. That's true. As I grow in Christ, I should be more like Jesus and less like the world. More like Jesus, less like the world. There's a negative. Yes, yes, less like the world. And there's a positive. More like Jesus. Let me put it to you simply, because there's lots of debates Christians argue on social media. Well, maybe drinking is okay. Well, maybe maybe worldliness is okay. Maybe worldly music is okay. Maybe worldly entertainment is okay. Maybe worldly dress is okay. Maybe worldly worldly wait wait what did you know? Do you know that God never says anything positive about this old world? Nothing as far as the world system. This is what he says. First, John two: love, not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the father is not in him for all that is in the world. The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. They're not of the father, but they're of the world and the world passeth away and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Demas, he said, Paul said, hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. The Bible says in the book of Romans 12, one and two, my, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you Present your body as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So he says, don't be conformed to this world. Don't love the world. The Bible says in the book of James chapter 4, friendship with the world is enmity with God. Now, he's not talking about being friends to your neighbors. You ought to be a friend to your neighbor. And you ought to have your neighbor over to eat. If you can, you ought to really make a sincere effort and an attempt to be a genuine friend to the people that live around you. Especially if they're not saved, so that you can point them to the Lord Jesus Christ and, and let them know that you're a real human being. And that you, you have and give them acts of kindness and show them acts of love. He's not talking about the, the people of this world. No, those are the people that Jesus loved and died for. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He's talking about those that are people in this world. But when he says you should not love the world, he's talking about this world system. 
And is there any doubt in our minds as Christians today with all that we see and all the information we have at our fingertips that this world system is running directly contrary to God? Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world, he says in James, is the enemy of God. Is there any doubt in our minds as we look at this world system? Do you know every time the world speaks, it's wrong? When it speaks on music, it's wrong. When it speaks on friendship, it's wrong. When it speaks on relationships, it's wrong. When it speaks on marriage, it's wrong. When it speaks on finances, it's wrong. And if somehow it happens to be right, it's because it unknowingly stumbled across a Bible truth on the subject. Or someone somehow in the past that was influencing those who de- declared this truth, they, they, they believed the Bible and followed the Bible. It's not because the world came up with it. Whenever the world speaks, it's wrong. When it speaks on being a husband. When it speaks on being a wife. When it speaks on uh, raising children. When it speaks on uh, uh, investing for the future. It's wrong. And, And if we begin to think otherwise, then pretty soon we'll think, well, no, maybe they're right on this. Well, maybe they're no, maybe they're right. No, no, no. This church and what this church represents in believing and preaching the Bible is in direct contrast to what the world says and what the world preaches. And if we live according to the world, no, I'm not like I'm not really an enemy of the world. I'm kind of a friend. No, God says if you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. There's no compromise in this. And so. It's a sad place, but I want you to notice, number two, there's a solved problem. I'm not one that likes to diagnose problems. I'm one that likes to find solutions. But guess what? You can't give a solution until you've diagnosed the problem. I've been with a pastor in the last few weeks that's had health problems. And last week, the pastor's wife had some health problems. And the problem is they don't know exactly what the problem is. That's a, that's a tough spot to be in. You get a blood test and you get uh, you, you get all the other tests and they test all the systems of your body and they give you this and maybe that and treat the symptoms. But they don't really they don't really know. That's why they say the doctor is practicing medicine. Mm. I'd like him to practice on somebody else other than me, you know. But but the truth is, is that God gives a problem salt solution right away. Here's the problem solution. Strengthen the things that remain. He didn't say weaken them. He didn't say leave them be. So let's say you have four legs on a chair and one is giving out because it's not tied to the other three. What do you do? You strengthen the one that remains. You get out your glue, you get out your clamps, you get out your screw gun, you get out your nail gun, whatever it is you're going to do to strengthen. You strengthen the weak part. He says, here's the solution to your problem. Strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. In other words, this church had a name that lived. It actually was dead. It didn't. It didn't. It used to used to go soul winning, used to tell people about Jesus, used to pass out tracts, used to preach the gospel. You used to be able to depend on these churches that the preacher would preach the word of God and he would preach it straight and strong and with compassion and a tear in his eye. But not anymore. Now it's a lot of self-help this and 12 ways to be a better that and 15 ways to be a better this and, and, and all this feel good and scratch your ears and tickle ears. If you want that, you can go down. 
down to the local rainbow, uh, rainbow shining and doves flying and kumbaya singing and shake your hiney kind of church down the road if you want to, but not a Bible preaching church and not a, not a, not a Bible preaching Jesus loving church and not a Baptist church that should claim, should, should be better than just its, its claims and, and be exactly what it claims. No. There's a solved problem. He said, strengthen the things that remain that are ready to die. Watch this. Look at this sadness. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. What is he speaking of? Specific individuals in a specific church. And when Jesus looks at this church, can he say, I have found your works perfect before God? Perfect doesn't mean absolutely without flaw. It means mature. It means right. It means genuine. It means true. It means when you get when you do wrong, you get right and you confess it and you're striving to be like Jesus. Jesus said, be therefore perfect, even as your father, which is in heaven, is perfect. Be holy as I am holy. So here's the solved problem. Notice number three. I want you to notice there's a serious penalty. Look at verse three. He says, remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard and hold fast. Now, this world, if we let it, will just stretch us to the limit and break us. I feel this many times, and I know you do, too. If I feel it as a preacher, I know people in the pew feel it, feel it on a regular basis. The stress and strain and, and the, the, the wrenching from side to side and pulling us. How would we have even thought that today in our day and in our world, we don't know whether, what a woman is. We don't know what a man is. We, we're confused about that. Well, why does this confusion come? Well, God's not the author of confusion. And you ought to do a study in your Bible reading and your own Bible study simply on the word confusion. It will be revealing. There's a lot of times that God says that is confusion. And that's our society right now. A society that has turned its back on God, that has turned away from God, that has turned away from the principles of God. He said, all right, there's a serious penalty. He said, remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. All right, that's the problem solved right there. If you repent, strengthen the things that remain, verse number two, be watchful, that are, strengthen the things that remain that are ready to die. And then he says, remember and, and, and what you have, how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. Five commands. Notice them again, verse two. Be watchful, strengthen the things that remain, remember, hold fast and repent. That's the solution. That's the solved problem. What what does he say? Verse number three. He says, if therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. You know, the church that's a dead church that is a used to church, the Christians that is a dead Christian that is a used to Christian. They're not ready when Jesus comes and they're not going to be ready. Jesus said, behold, I come as a thief in the night. Here he says, I will come on thee as a thief and thou shalt not know what hour I will come unto thee. He used to preach. I didn't think that we knew the day or the hour. Well, we don't know the day or the hour, but mark, mark, mark my words. A Christian that is alive and a church that is alive is alive because they're looking for the coming of Jesus Christ and they're ordering their lives so that they will not be ashamed at his coming. 
those that are alive, that are that are showing forth the life of Christ. That's the idea. They're saved. They're on their way to heaven, but they're showing forth the abundant life. They're living in light of Jesus Christ uh, uh, coming. They're living in, in lieu of Jesus Christ coming. And they're living because Jesus Christ died, was buried and rose again. They're not going to be surprised when Jesus comes. I've never, never in my entire life been more excited than in the last three years about Jesus Christ coming. I'm super excited about it. I'm more excited now than when I first got saved and when I first got in the ministry. I'm more excited than I've ever been thinking about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that could change like that. I could get my eyes off of Jesus. I could get my eyes onto the world. I could get my eyes on men and their problems and the way they do wrong and they mistreat God's people and they mistreat. I could, I could get my eyes on other Christians that don't do right. And I could just be all crossways with God and crossways with people. And you know what? Pretty soon I'd be one of those used to Christians. And there have been times when I've been a used to Christian. And I need to come back to the Word of God. And what is the solution? Repent. Remember, he says, strengthen the things that remain. Be watchful, strengthen the things that remain. Remember uh, how thou hast received and heard. Hold fast and repent. I want you to keep your finger here in Revelation 3. Quickly turn back with me over to 2 Timothy chapter 3. I want you to see how this is played out in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Look at what he says in verse 14. He says in 2 Timothy 3, verse 1, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. Men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truth fakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof from such turn away. You know that having a form of godliness? is like somebody that says they're alive, but they're dead. But he's speaking even on a deeper point. Okay, watch. Let me let me put it to you this way. My dad grew up in a church, going to a church in the northern part of Minnesota, truly the northern part of Minnesota. And it was Pingilly, Minnesota. It was a United Methodist church. My grandpa was the treasurer. My dad said I could probably call it on one hand, maybe two. How many times we missed church all my growing up years. But you know, my dad, until he was 16, never heard that he was lost. Never heard that he was headed to hell. Never heard that he could be saved from his sin. Never. It wasn't until an Assembly of God preacher from Hibbing got a burden for Pengilly, came to Pengilly, which was about 35 minutes away, got a tent, got a preacher who was on his way as a missionary to France, came in and preached. That was the first time my dad ever heard the gospel. First time you ever heard, I was wrong with God. Sixteen years went by. The United Methodist Church. Do you know how the Methodist Church was started? It was started on accident. John Wesley didn't even want to start the Methodist Church. He wasn't trying to start something different. But he, along with 2,000 preachers, were kicked out of the Episcopalian or Anglican Church, the Church of England. They were kicked out because they didn't want their loud voices and their holiness sermons and their preaching for the preaching of the cross. They were kicked out. George Whitfield was one. John Wesley, they came to the eastern shore of America and lit it up for God. And John Wesley started the Methodist Church. And I'll tell you, most everywhere I've been in places in third world countries and other places around the world. Guess what there is? A Methodist church. They lit the world on fire for God. What happened? What happened? So that now in the northern part of Minnesota, they have a name that they are alive, but they're dead. Liberalism crept in one little lie at a time. 
One little lie at a time. So what about the Salvation Army? The Salvation Army still claims to preach the gospel. And in some cases they may, but in some cases they've preached lately a social gospel. William Booth was the founder of the Salvation Army. And do you know you can go to Manhattan right now and you can see a monument that has a plaque on it where William Booth came from England and he pitched a flag, a Salvation Army flag in the soil of Manhattan to claim the whole country for God. Now I want to ask you, where is that kind of zeal today? Where is that kind of passion today? To go with the gospel and print more gospel tracts. And he, William Booth said, I'm, I'm going to go. They, they didn't want him in the pulpits of his denomination. So you know what he did? He went in the middle of the night with a band and a trumpet and a, and a, and a drum beating the drum and tooting the horn. Where? Right in the middle of the red light district. Going straight down to the, the, the refuse, to the neglected, to the rejected people of society. And he said, nobody else wants them, I'll go. And, and, and William Booth was no schmuck. He was the antithesis of everything that was evil and everyone that he was trying to win as far as holiness was concerned. But how could the Salvation Army go from a gospel preaching organization, fiery on fire, in some cases they still do, but how could they go to being more of a social gospel organization and not necessarily doing that today? How? How? How could that happen? One little lie at a time from a church that used to and from a, 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 a preachers that used to, to know they don't do that anymore. One Christian, one member at a time. What, what happened? They weren't watchful. They didn't strengthen the things that remained. Look, at, they had a form of godliness, but denied the power thereof. Now, he gives several things in this passage, but I want to call your attention to verse number 14. Verse 13, he says, but evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But continue thou. In the things which thou hast learned... And hast been assured of, watch this, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. This church for the last 28 years at least, and even longer than that, has had a godly testimony before you. In the pastor and the leadership that have been, that have been set before you as examples. You're not only supposed to remember what you've learned. You're supposed to remember from whom you've learned them. In other words, there shouldn't be a difference between the teacher and his life. And look at what he says back in Revelation chapter 3. He says, remember therefore how thou hast received and heard. So, well, I don't remember what the preacher preached last Sunday. Well, you should. You should be trying. You write it down somewhere. Do you listen to it again? Don't forget it. Remember, do you know how many times Paul says, remember, 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 I put you in remembrance. Remember, remember, remember. Why? Because we easily forget. But, you know, a trait of godliness is not to forget. God is not unrighteous to forget your work of love and your labor of faith and your patience and hope. And so it's a godly characteristic to say, I'm going to remember, I'm going to remember what I've heard. And I'm going to remember how this baton of truth has been passed on. I'll tell you something that bothers me to the very 
depths of my soul is to see preachers, young preachers today who have been raised up in Bible preaching churches and sent off to Bible training institutions and then go out to preach and they take the batons of truth that they have been passed and they look at, they look at it and they throw it down and say, eh, I don't want it. And run the exact opposite direction. If you were watching a 400 meter relay race, And the first guy makes a lap all the way around, passes the baton to the next guy. He runs a lap all the way around, passes the baton to the next guy. He runs a lap all the way around. Looks like you guys might have a chance to win. And the fourth guy gets the baton and halfway around his lap, he looks at the baton. He throws it down and he runs cut across all the way across the field. What would you assume about that person? You could assume easily either number one, he's struggling with something that nobody can really see. Number two, he is completely selfish. Or number three, he's lost his mind. So when a preacher or a Christian runs the race and is supposed to be running the race faithfully and receives the baton from tr- of truth from the last generation, and they, they say, ah, I don't need it. And they give up their leg of the race. You can easily assume about that Christian. They're struggling with some, but something that nobody can see. They're either that or completely selfish or they've totally lost their mind. And if you do not receive the truth that has been passed on from one generation to the next. I was just in a church, I said yesterday, that was started 180 years ago. And there are families in that church right now, four generations of Ulmers in that church. And do you know one of the families that started that church 180 years ago? The Ulmer family. Now, I don't know a whole lot about the Ulmer family. The Ulmers that I know are pretty stand-up people. But I know this. Somewhere along the line, they learned how to pass the truth and receive the truth and pass the truth and receive the truth. He says, remember Revelation chapter 3. Therefore, how thou hast received and heard and hold fast. Watch. Here you have it. You have a sad place. They have a name that they live and are dead. They've, God, God says, I have not found thy works perfect before God. There's a solved problem. Number three, there's a serious penalty. If you don't watch, strengthen, remember, hold fast and repent, then he's going to come on you as a thief. You know what's going to happen to every single Christian and every single church that used to, that is not found watching when Jesus comes? They're going to be so ashamed at the judgment seat. Because immediately following the rapture, there's the judgment seat. They're going to have to give an account. Sorry, Lord, I wasn't. I shouldn't have been. I, I don't know why I was watching that Netflix show. So I'm sorry, Lord, I, I wasn't. I, I didn't know you were coming. I wasn't expecting you to come right in the middle of that, that R-rated movie. I'm sorry, Lord, I, I shouldn't have been yelling at my wife. Or would you please... Please, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. I, I shouldn't have been disrespecting my husband. I'm sorry, Lord. I shouldn't have been disobedient to my parents and living in defiance to the truths that they give me. Lord, I, 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 I was going to come forward. I, I didn't mean to say no to you five verses into the invitation. And, and I know I should have, but I was, I was hungry. And, and I was thinking about the roast that would be burning on the Sunday afternoon service. But I'm sorry, I didn't mean to be a friend to the world in my dress and my attire and my, my, my ambitions and my goals. I'm sorry for being so 
materialistically driven. It's a serious penalty. Watch verse number four. He says, thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they're worthy. Watch me now. You know what he's saying? There's some of you that haven't died. There's some of you that haven't given up. Now, I'll tell you, there are some people that have stayed in churches that I've known over the years that have died. And I don't think they've stayed because they're trying to disobey the Lord. I think they've stayed, number one, because they don't really know where else to go. And they've stayed, number two, sometimes because they're really trying and truly trying to affect change. They haven't themselves changed. They still try to get people saved. I don't think that's always the way it should be, especially when there's doctrinal error and compromise. The Bible says come out from among them in those situations and be a separate. But the fact of the matter is, he said, there's some in Sardis which have not defiled their garments. You know what that is? Number four, that's a sweet purity. Not everybody in Sardis was dead. Overall, they had a name that was dead, a name that they lived, but they were dead. Overall, they had not found their works were not perfect before God, but there were some who were still plotting on. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know where to go. You know, I don't think Sardis had five different Baptist churches. Now, here in Virginia, if you don't like what goes on at one church, you can just go down the road to another church. I don't think Sardis had that opportunity. Nor did Corinth, nor did Ephesus, nor did Philippi, nor did Galatia, nor did Laodicea, nor did Thyatira, nor did Pergamos, nor did Philadelphia, nor did, nor did any of these churches that are listed here in Revelation 2 and 3. So, so where would they go? And here they are, just trying to honor God, trying to love Jesus. You know what that is? That's a sweet purity. Living for Jesus. And then notice, please, what he says in verse 5. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before my uh, and before his angels. Wow. Now, you know, sometimes when you look at the phrase, he that overcometh, you think, well, that just means I got to work a little harder. I got to overcome another obstacle. That's not what the word means when we come to Revelation 2 and 3. Do you know who he that overcometh is? Those that are saved. You say, how do you know that? Well, look back at 1 John chapter 5, would you? If you want to prove it from the Bible, 1 John chapter 5, verse number 4. It says, for whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. I want you to notice number 5. There is a saving promise. He says in Revelation 3, he that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. That means every person that has placed their faith in Jesus Christ, you know what, is going to have a white raiment. Watch, you know what else it's saying? These people in Sardis that had a name that they were alive, but were dead, even though they were living, not living out the truths of the Christian life, they were still, they were still on their way to heaven. It didn't break eternal salvation and eternal security in the least. He said, here, you're going to get a white raiment. You're going to, he says, I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Wow. That means that's motivation. It's motivation. There's two kinds of motivation in this passage of Scripture. Motivation that Jesus might come as a thief and we wouldn't be ready and we would be ashamed before Him at His coming. And another motivation is that 
I'm still a child of God. And He hasn't forsaken me. And He hasn't abandoned me. And He's not going to leave me uh, to, to go to hell because of my disobedience and my sin. What a motivation to get back on track for God and to live for the Lord Jesus Christ and to become an on-fire Christian, though I once was. I want to say, listen to me, God doesn't put people aside never to, set, never to use them and never to want them and never to, never to bless them ever again. No, no. If you're not right with God, you can get right with God today. You don't have to stay in a place of backsliding, backsliding and uselessness. You can live for God. Notice verse number six, how he concludes. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Now, do you have an ear? You say, Brother Smith, I have two. Well, you know what that means? You're doubly accountable. To whom much is given, much shall be required. He said, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. I wonder, is this God's solution for you? This is God's solution for churches and Christians that used to. Maybe you used to be on fire for God. Maybe because of the last two or three years and the trouble with COVID and the difficulty that we've all experienced in this crazy time and in this crazy world, you said, ah, I just give up. I quit. Maybe there's somebody listening by way of live stream or listening uh, by way of, of the link to this sermon. And you used to be on fire and you used to be in church. Hey, get back on board. Come on back. Get right with God. Be watchful. Strengthen the things that remain. Remember from whence you're fallen and how you've received the truth of God's word. Hold fast and repent. Get right with God tonight. You don't have to live in a state of backsliding perpetually and continuously. You can get right with God today and not be a Christian that used to. You can be a Christian that still is. Would you bow with me in prayer? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I thank you for your attention to the Bible. Your patience with this preacher. I wonder with your heads bowed and eyes closed if you'd say, Brother Smith, I know that I'm saved. I'm on my way to heaven. There's no doubt there. But you'd say, Preacher, God's spoken to my heart about one or more areas than one where I used to love the Lord and used to be serving the Lord Used to be on fire for the Lord. Used to be seeking to be pure like Him. But God's convicted me. And I, I don't want to be a used to Christian. Contributing to a used to church. I want to repent and get right. If that's you, would you slip up your hand right now? God bless you. Praise the Lord. Amen. I know the Spirit of God is speaking. This is what the Spirit of God says. That's how verse 1 started. And this is how verse 6 ended. It says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. We didn't just hear from a talk show host. We didn't just hear from a talking head. Or an expert. We just heard from the Spirit of the living God. Oh, how foolish we would be to just disregard it. When he says, I know where you're at. I know what you used to be. I know how you can get back. Come on back. How foolish we would be to disregard him. Is there anyone else that said, Preacher, God's spoken to my heart about an area where I used to. I need to get right. That you would just slip up your hand. Anyone? Anyone else? God bless you. Two more questions tonight. How many of you would say, Brother Smith? I'm not perfect, but I know I'm saved. There's been a time in my life when I've trusted Christ as my Savior. And it's not that I think or hope or wish I'm going. I know I'm going. If that's you, would you slip up your hand? As a testimony to that fact, preacher, I know I'm saved. God bless you. You can put your hands down. I wonder, is there anybody here tonight that said, preacher, I don't know that. I wish I knew. I want to know. Would you pray for me? If that's you, would you slip up your hand? Is there anyone here like that?
Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. In just a moment, I'm going to ask the pianist to begin playing a few verses of Now I'm Coming Home. I've wandered far away from God. Now I'm coming home. God's speaking to your heart. You come. You come. Let's stand with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for what you're doing in our heart tonight. 162. 162. Father, thank you for what you're doing in our heart for speaking to us. Help us now in these few brief remaining moments of our invitation to get right with you. To get things right. To repent. Where we've done wrong, help us to get right and repent. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Heads are bowed.